Well, happy Derby weekend, church. You guys having a good weekend so far? Enjoy the nice weather? Yeah, yeah. So um, if this is your first time with us or it's your first time in a long time, I just want to say thanks for joining us. And whether you're joining us out there, wherever there is, you're here with us or right here in the room with us. That means a lot that you're here. And a special shout out. Each week I see people who I know it requires extra effort for them to get here. Um, parents with real little ones, some of our older people who, man, your body just doesn't move quite the same as it once did. And some of our folks with disabilities, you, you only have so many energy units in each day. And when you spend your energy units on a Sunday to be with us, and that, that's overwhelming for me. So thanks for being here with us. That, that's, that's pretty awesome. Just shout out to those of you who, like, you make it a point to do that. Um, and how cool was it to see all those baptisms that we've been celebrating recently in that video? I mean, God's just doing some good stuff here. And so today, we're going to hopefully continue on with that. We are in a series called Revealed, where we're taking a look at the book of Revelation. And uh, it's been a good series so far. And today, we are going to be covering a lot of ground and doing it pretty quickly. If you watched yesterday's derby, the fastest two minutes in sports, you might feel like you are chasing down Medina's spirit today in this service. Because we're covering chapters 6 through 11, and then we're going to dabble a little bit in chapters 15 and 16. And that is just an insane amount of ground to cover in the book of Revelation in one message. It's going to feel nutty, but we're going to do it, and here's why. Because when we do it that way, it helps us understand that the big picture is the point. We're not going to get bogged down in too many of the details. We're going to paint with broad brush strokes and look at the big idea of what's going on in those several chapters in that section of Revelation. And then we're going to take just a few sections that kind of represent the whole of all that and, and look closely at those. But we don't want to get too bogged down in the details because the details matter but they don't matter most. The big picture is the big point, so we want to keep that in front of us. So with that said, here we go. Last week, in chapters 4 and 5, we witnessed the lion who is the lamb open up, or he was worthy to hold the scroll. All right? The lion who is the lamb, he's worthy to hold the scroll. Today, we see that he begins opening that scroll. And so that gives us this picture of what's going to be going on here. Now, I want to remind us that this is apocalyptic writing. And so in the book of Revelation with Apocalypse, all that we see is symbolic and, and it's like a sign of something else, right? So the, the pictures that are painted for us there, the, the imagery that's given, animals and nations and angels and all these things and, and numbers and colors and on and on and on. There's just so much symbolism there. So we don't want to get too bogged down in trying to find out all the details that we miss the big picture of taking it all in. So here's the big picture of what's happening in this section of Revelation. We see three different sets of God's judgment. And in each one of those sets, there's seven different items, right? So we have a picture of seven seals being pulled off the scroll, then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls, right? So seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And each of these is a picture of God's judgment. And at that time, in that culture, seven was a picture of perfection and completion. So we have this picture of God's total, complete judgment, Right? And in each one of these sets or cycles of seven, we see the same pattern show up. We have a set of four things that go together, 
and then a set of two things that go together, and then there's a break in the action, this pause where we get to catch our breath, and then the final one. So we have four seals, two seals, a break, and then the final seal. Four trumpets, two trumpets, a break, and the final trumpet. Four bowls, two bowls, a break, and the final bowl. And so that's how this all plays out. So we see this thing come up again and again, and it's this picture of God's total judgment. Now, before we go on, I'm going to say some stuff today that you might not agree with on the details. All right, big picture, I hope you all agree. On the details, here's the deal. I don't want any of us to get too dogmatic with the details. Because if we get too dogmatic and too into this and say, man, I know what every single detail of the book of Revelation means. At that point, I'm going to stand a little bit away from you because I'm just waiting for like bad things to happen. Because I don't think any of us, 2,000 years removed from that culture and that time and that style of writing really understands every single piece. There's some mystery there. There's a little bit of confusion. It could go this way. It could go that way. And for some of us, we just really don't know. And with the details, that's okay. It's okay to say that there's a little bit in that passage of the Bible where we're like, um, it could be this or that. I'm, I'm really not sure. Because we know the big picture. And that's where we can and that's where we should. Shoot, I'd say that's where we must agree. It's on the big picture. And here's the big, big picture. Jesus coming back. He wins. God wins. Good wins. And if we sign with him, we got nothing to worry about. Amen? Amen. So that's where we're going with this, right? So we see this stuff start to unfold. And, and in this writing, we, we see that there's these three different sets of sevens. Now, I would say that each of the three sets of judgments is actually narrating the same sequence of events. Now, this is one of those areas where people disagree. They're like, well, no, 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 no. It's chronological. But here's the problem with that. We, we live in 2021 here in the U.S., and we think Linearly, we think chronologically. We think this, then that, then that. One, then two, then three, then four, then five. A, then B, then C, then D, then E. That, like, that's how we think. The problem is we got to be really careful not to read that back and impose that on that culture back then. Because the Jewish mind of that time was not so linear and chronological. It was much more circuitous and circular, repetitious. And so I think that these seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls are actually narrating the same thing from different angles and different perspectives with a little bit more intensity each time, giving us the same picture of God's continuing judgment and final judgment that it ends with the end of the world. It's just the picture of the same thing three different times. When John was writing, John did not have devices in their language in the way they wrote, like italics or bold print or highlighters. They had repetition. That's how you emphasize the same points. You repeat it again and again and again. So last week in chapters 4 and 5, we see this picture of the throne room of heaven where every eye in all of creation is focused on the Savior Jesus. And they all cry out, holy, holy, holy. Thrice repeated for emphasis. The holiness of God. It's worth saying more than once. Well, here the judgment of God is also worth repeating and giving us this picture of how it's going to happen and what is happening. It's just repeated three times in a little bit different way. And so we have this picture in this judgment scene. Now, I know that word judgment. It probably doesn't sit well with some of you. Some people are like, man, I don't want to go to a church where the preacher is going to talk about judgment. I don't, oh, is he going to mention hell? I mean, that's, it, that's kind of outdated, man. That's, that's just out of style now. We don't want to deal with that. But the reality is that's, 
that's a piece of the puzzle. Like, we, we've got to deal with that. We've got to talk about God's judgment because it's there. But, but if that word, which might seem cruel or mean or just lacking compassion, if it makes you cringe, just stick with me for a moment because it might be different than you think. This concept of judgment. Listen, God, God is not cruel or mean. God doesn't just cast evil sinners into hell because he doesn't like them. Like, that's not... That's not at all the picture we have in the Bible. In fact, God has gone to great lengths to demonstrate just the opposite of that. That, that to the contrary, God wants us to avoid judgment and condemnation. It, it, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, wrote this. He said, the Lord is not really being slow about his promise, as some people might think. No, God is being patient for your sake. That's for our sakes. Because he does not want anyone to be destroyed to face judgment and condemnation, but he wants everyone to repent and find salvation. That's the picture we have here. The centering vision at the beginning of the book of Revelation is the lion who is the lamb who is willing to lay his own life down and sacrifice himself so that we might be made right with God. I mean, John begins his revelation this way in verse 5 of chapter 1. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from what? From our sins. And how did he do it? By shedding his blood for us. He gave his life. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. See, God has given of himself so that we would not have to face judgment and condemnation. He offers us grace so that we might avoid condemnation and hell. So if we face judgment, if we face condemnation, if we face wrath, that's on us. It's not on him. Listen, we got to own the part of the story that is ours. Sin has its own harvest. And judgment is the consequence for sin. We reap what we sow. You sow sin, you reap judgment. And keep in mind the sequence, because sequence matters. Sin always precedes judgment. Sin comes before judgment. Judgment follows sin. That's just how it works. So our sin invites judgment, unless we have turned to Jesus for forgiveness and hope and healing. So, like I said, rather than read every verse from every chapter that we're covering today, because time just doesn't allow for that, I'm going to invite you to go home and read those chapters 6 through 11 and explore them. And, and today I'm, I'm going to give us this overview and then we're going to dive into a few spots within them. So we see these first four seals, right? So that in Revelation 6, we see four seals begin opened up and these four seals are, are opening up for these four different horsemen to come in. Now in apocalyptic literature, four is a picture of the totality of the earth. So this means his judgment is coming upon the entire earth. So we have the four horsemen. You may have heard the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is where it's from. Now, now don't think like happy derby horses with their jockeys riding in. No, this is more like Schwarzenegger back in the day as Conan the Barbarian coming in. Some of you are just like, who's that? Google it. You'll figure it out. I just dated myself, but that's how it is. So these horsemen are like, you know, and then they're referred to again in the trumpet judgments as these long-haired barbarians from the other side of the Euphrates River. And, and here's why this matters. Because in Rome, and this is how John's audience would have heard this, they're part of the Roman Empire, that the Romans weren't scared of a whole lot. Now, like, they didn't worry about much. They were the tough guy on the block. They were the big, bad, tough dudes. 
Except there was this one group on the other side of the Euphrates who they, they feared, they dreaded. Because a generation before, these people, the Parthians, had won a decisive victory over the Romans. And the Romans had this nagging threat of invasion coming across the Euphrates and into the empire and conquering them. These Parthians looked exactly like the description in Romans 6 and Romans 9 of these barbaric horsemen and these invaders. The, the, the evil, wicked, demonic forces that are painted for us in those chapters are painted in the likeness of Rome's most dreaded and most feared enemy. And then we find these trumpet judgments and these bold judgments that mimic the exodus, the, what was happening with the plagues when Moses went to Pharaoh to say, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and he was there in, in trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt. And with all the plagues that happened then, we see that, that same picture happening with the, the trumpets and the bulls here in Revelation. And what this is doing is it's painting this picture that for John's readers, these persecuted Christians who were being put to death and tortured because of their faith in Jesus, that this is hope, this is really good news, that this means that, that Rome will one day be conquered. Like that's the picture that's being painted. Is that judgment will come on Rome. That the oppressor, that the persecutor will face the wrath of God. And so God's people will be vindicated. They will be rescued. They will be made okay. But we also see in this picture that this representation, these four that represents the entirety of the earth. It's Rome, but it's not only Rome. It's a picture that every earthly, worldly, human kingdom that sets itself up against the kingdom of God will face the judgment of God. Which, by the way, just happens to be every single earthly human kingdom because that's how they all operate. They choose themselves over God. Every earthly kingdom. Every earthly power. And so that's this picture we see unfolding here. And we see with this picture these concepts of death and destruction, of danger, we see famine and plague. We see just natural disasters and economic injustice and economic turmoil and pain and suffering. Do these sound like things we're waiting on? Do these sound like things that are yet to come for us? Or do these sound like things we see in the news all the time throughout the entirety of our lives? See, I think this is less a picture of particular events that will happen in the future and it's much more a picture of what God is already up to. This isn't painting a picture of what will happen or what has happened. It's a picture of what always happens because that's how it works. Sin brings judgment. It always has. It always will. And so for us, it's not for us to get wrapped up in identifying the exact points of reference for all the different events going on in, in these judgment calls, like trying to look at earthly kingdoms and worldly leaders in the Middle East and China and Russia and this and that, and what's going on in the White House. And if we do that, we'll, we'll just go nuts. Because that's not the point. The, the point is for us to be warned. To have a very clear warning in front of us that sin brings judgment. And if we stand in our sin instead of standing in the grace of God, judgment comes to us. And we'll come to every earthly kingdom. That's the warning for us here. Is to be warned. Judgment follows sin, so heed the warning. Now the unfortunate reality of this, and this is what we've seen throughout human history, and the unfortunate reality throughout the history of the church is that the church gets caught in the crossfires and even those who follow God are not exempt from pain and suffering and problems 
and persecution. So we turn to Revelation 6. And those who have been martyred for their faith, those who have been killed because they follow Jesus, they shout to the Lord and say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long, God, before you judge the people who belong to this world? And how long before you avenge our blood for what they have done to us? And God's answer is, in a moment. He just says, then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer. Just wait until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were yet to be martyred, had joined them. How long? How long must the suffering continue? How long must we endure? How long must we wait for you, God? And God's response is just simply, wait. Just hold on. Just hold on because the time's coming. Others are going to join you. Others will be martyred too. And then they're given these white robes, a symbol of purity, a symbol of of being refined. A reminder that God is always refining his people and he does his great work even in the school of suffering for us. How long, they ask, and the answer is not a timeline. It's simply wait and endure. Just be patient because God has got you and he's preparing you for your white robe, even through suffering. Remember how John begins his letter. He says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. That word suffering, also tribulation. It's the same word in in Revelation. I'm your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. Jesus is calling us to endure. What's he calling us to endure? Endure the suffering. He says, just wait, just hold out, even when suffering comes, because that's when God is molding you and, and refining you and growing you and transforming you. That's when God's doing his best work in you. God often teaches us the greatest lessons in that school of suffering, in that season of suffering. And sometimes, unfortunately, we lack the eternal perspective to see it. Because we just want to move past the suffering. We want to avoid it or just rocket our way through it and microwave those experiences. And God says, just wait and endure. See, the problem is sometimes suffering happens and and without the eternal perspective of what God is up to in the world and in our own lives, we, we just allow suffering to make us bitter. But God is actually trying to use it to make us better. And so, so, so choose betterment, not bitterness. And just endure, just hold on a little bit longer. Uh, the Bishop Fulton Sheen once quipped, think of how much suffering goes to waste. The Apostle Paul, writing to his friends at the church at Philippi, a Roman colony, writing from a jail in Rome, awaiting what would likely be his death sentence, wrote this to them. He said, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Their culture, no more than ours, was a culture that was chasing health and wealth. And in a culture that is just bent on pursuing health and wealth at any cost, God's response is suffer and endure. Just wait. Because that's the picture of the cross. You're going to have to suffer because that's just the way this world is. So just endure it with love and patience. Because that's the way of the cross. That's the way of your Christ. And that's what I'm calling you to do is just endure and be willing to lay your life down even for those who oppose you. That's this recurring message in the book of Revelation. 
And so we have this question, how, how long? And God says, wait. And, and then in verse 17, we find the next question. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Other translations would say, who can stand? Who can stand in the day of judgment? And so there's this pause in the action between Revelation, uh, or between the sixth and seventh seal. And, and, and God is telling us, here's, here's your answer. I, I hold you. And, and then he gives us this picture. Re- Revelation 7 is the answer to who can stand. John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. Remember, four represents the entirety of the earth. So this is a picture of the entire earth, right? And uh, they're holding back the four winds, so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even any tree. And then I saw another angel. He came up out of the east, carrying the seal of the living God. Now, the seal of the living God is simply the Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll, we'll unpack that more next week. A little teaser. Join us next week. But the seal of the living God, that's the Holy Spirit. And this angel shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Wait, he says, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we've placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Again, next week. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. Now keep this in mind. I heard how many were marked. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. Then he lists out all the 12 tribes. 12,000 in each tribe. 12 times 12,144,000. 12, so he hears this number. And this, remember, numbers are representative. Numbers are symbolic. This is a picture of the fullness of Israel, God's chosen holy people. And he says, I heard this picture of Israel. And then after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in their white robes. I heard 144,000, and then I turned and I saw a multitude too vast to count. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that we saw that, that, that John heard lion, and then he turned and he saw lamb. He heard lion, roar, he turned and he saw a lamb. Ugh. And that's, you know, and sound effects were better last week. If you weren't with us, go back and check it out. You missed something. So he hears lion, sees lamb. Today, he hears 144,000. He hears Israel, and he turns, and he sees multitude too numerous to count. He, he sees this picture of the fullness of God's community, every tribe, nation, language, and people. He, he hears Israel, and he turns and sees, oh, wait, 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 no, no, it is no longer defined by ethnicity or birthright. It's defined by faith that the new Israel, the true Israel, is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by lineage of ethnicity. The church is the new Israel. This is the picture he's been given there. And this is what he sees. See, God has always been forming a people for himself, taking them to a place and his presence goes with them. But he morphs all those all the time. It's continually progressing. And yet God takes his people to a place, right? It begins with this promised land. And then the promised land spreads in the New Testament through the entirety of the world as it moves out to the Gentiles. And then the fullness of that is when the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new earth is formed and we are there in the very presence of God there. The presence of God morphs throughout scripture where he's He's present with them in the garden, and then he has to remove himself a little bit because of the sin. And then God is present in a temple, in a tent, and then a temple. And then he's present in Jesus, in the flesh with us. And then he's present with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and we become the temple. And then, in glory, 
in the temple of heaven, we're face to face with him. His presence is always morphing to give us this fuller, better picture. And the people of God morph as well from Abraham and his immediate descendants to the descendants of Israel and the people of God to the church who believes in Jesus, beginning with the Jews and then spreading to the Gentiles and then going to every tribe, language, people, and nation. That's the picture of what God is up to. And that's who he's using in the book of Revelation is the church. We must not minimize our role in God's plan. And so those people then begin shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are those who are clothed in white? Where do they come from? And I said to him, that's a rhetorical question because you know, give me the answer. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great suffering They've washed the robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. Now listen, my mama and my wife can tell you I've had a lot of white shirts that have gotten stained with blood and that blood did not make them clean because my blood can't cleanse. My blood can't heal. My blood can't wash and neither can yours. There's only one whose blood can do that. His name is Jesus and his blood cleanses us and his blood washes us and if you don't know him, you need to get to know him. Yeah. Because he's the one who wins. Now, it's also good for us to realize that these people are crying out. These were martyrs crying out. And so the ones who knew God are facing this stuff. So the ones who knew God, just by simple fact of knowing God, did not mean they would not be suffering or persecuted or even killed. Like their faith in that same not Actually, their, their faith brought on suffering. Their, their faith was precisely why they were being persecuted. For some, their faith was exactly the reason they were killed. But what it means is they did not die for nothing. They did not suffer in vain. Because God is always up to something. And so God is working this out. And so then all of them... This is why they stand in front of God's throne and they serve him day and night in his temple there in glory. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. Are you hearing the promise that God gives to his church? For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. Don't you love what he does with that? The lamb isn't a shepherd. The lamb needs a shepherd. But our lamb becomes our shepherd. And he leads us to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So they ask, how long? And God says, wait. And they ask, who can stand? And God says, you can. You can. If your hope, your faith, your trust is in the line who is the lamb who has shed his blood for you, then you can stand even through the suffering. So church, whatever suffering you're enduring, just know that the lamb who is slain is there with you in it. God has not forgotten you. God knows his own. He loves his own and he will rescue his own. Just endure. Just endure. There's hope. Heaven awaits for you. So endure with patience. But this begs this third question from us. If those who are known are to endure and, and, and they can withstand, what about those who don't know? What about those who don't turn to God? What about the judgment for them? And listen to what happens in the judgment. But the people who did not die in these plagues, and those are the ones, these people are the ones who were not turned to God, they still refuse to repent of their evil deeds. And they refuse to turn to God. So we have this picture unfolding here that judgment alone does not bring repentance. 
that judgment after judgment after judgment, seal after seal after seal, trumpet blast after trumpet blast after trumpet blast, bull pouring out again and again and again, and it does not bring repentance. That alone doesn't. So we have this picture of this terribly lost world and these terrible plagues, this terrible judgment that will come with every pulling back of the seal, with every trumpet blast, with every bull poured out. This suffering and judgment will come. And so the question is begged, who will go to these people? Who will warn them? Who will invite them to repentance? Who will show them the way to salvation? And God's response is emphatically, you, the church, that's your job. That's what it is for us. See, the interlude between the sixth and seventh seal reminds us of our security in Christ. But the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets reminds us of our responsibility to Christ. Because it's there, in between the sixth and seventh seal, that we find Revelation chapter 10 and 11. And we see a picture of John and these two witnesses who presumably represent the entirety of the church. And they are commanded, not invited, not encouraged, commanded to share the message of Jesus. And what we see here is this picture that we are to partner with God, that God uses us, that his judgments and our witness together will bring repentance. The judgment alone does not bring repentance, but judgment combined with our witness does. See, judgment alone won't bring repentance. The church, this should tell us something about the way we are to witness. That if our judgment is, or if our witness is judgmentalism, That won't bring repentance. It doesn't win the world to Christ. Judgment is God's to give. What he's invited us to in the picture we see throughout Revelation is a willingness to sacrificially love other people and lay our lives down for them. To serve them even to the point of death. That's the picture of the church. It's an invitation to come and die to ourselves. And to set aside whatever other thing gets in the way of people hearing about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't share truth. It just means that when we share truth, we share it in a way that people can hear it and absorb it and respond to it. Not in a way that pushes them further away, but in a way that invites them in. That's to be our witness. That's the heart behind our love, the 502, is that we want to reveal the love of Christ to our community in such a way that they would know the truth that they need to repent and turn to God. So we reveal love so that they might be drawn in to his forgiveness and encounter his truth. That's the heart behind it. Remember the martyrs ask, how long? And God says, wait. So what are we to do while we wait? We're to witness. We are to bear witness of the hope that we have in Jesus and the difference he has made in our lives and that Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. That's what we do in the waiting. I would say it this way. We winsomely witness while we wait to make the waiting worthwhile. Did you get enough W's in there? Was, it, was, it, was that clever enough for you? I, I feel like one of the short guys following Snow White. Whistle while we work. We winsomely witness as we wait to make the waiting worthwhile. Church, that's our job. That's our sole primary task. So I'm going to invite you to say that with me, okay? You ready? Here we go. We winsomely witness as we wait to make the waiting worthwhile. It's a little sing-songy. Let's do it again. We winsomely witness as we wait to make the waiting worthwhile. Oh, man, come on. Everybody. I know it was like derby last night. You had fun, but I was living it up, right? We winsomely witness as we wait to make the waiting worthwhile. I hope you can remember that because that's your job. Friend, Jesus is coming back. And when he does... 
what's he going to catch you doing? Well, what will he catch you witnessing for? Because some of us are really good about telling everybody else about our favorite sports team or our favorite restaurants or what we had for a meal. We're, we're really good about saying all the stuff about politics and all the stuff about schools and all the stuff about what's going on in our world. We're, we're really good about witnessing to all of those things. But are we telling people about Jesus in a winsome way that invites them to find hope in him? To move from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of life. To move from death and judgment and condemnation to salvation in Jesus Christ. Of all the things that we would put on our social media, shouldn't this be most and primary and best and first and foremost? Some of us talk about everything else but this. And this is our job as followers of Christ. Listen, if you follow Christ, this is where he leads. He's leading us to tell everyone we know, everyone we encounter, everywhere we go to find and follow him. That's where Jesus leads, is to tell everyone we encounter, everywhere we go, to find and follow Jesus and find hope and healing and salvation in him alone. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of scripture. That's the job given to us. So we all must view ourselves as missionaries in this world. I I like the gal who was asked, hey, what's your job? And she responded, oh, my job? I'm a missionary. I'm just really cleverly disguised as a receptionist at the bank down the street. And that's how we are to view ourselves. Missionaries in disguise everywhere we go. Winsomely witnessing while we wait with an expectancy for Jesus to return. That's the task for us. That's what Jesus has for us. So church, I want you to search your heart. I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to ask God today. I I I want you to ask God to break your heart today for the people who are far from him. I I want you to wrestle with this and ask yourself, what what matters more than the mission of Jesus What is more important than the salvation of our friends and our neighbors and our family and our coworkers and the people around us? What other need is more pressing than that? What other thing has derailed us from our mission? What else matters more than the salvation of those who without Christ will face judgment without hope? Church, that's our job. That, that is to be our life's work above everything else. It's to bear witness for Christ and let everyone else know the hope we have in him so that they might find hope in him too. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would break our hearts. That you would just wreck us for those who are far from you. God, I pray that you would give us, even in this moment, the faces and the names of people we know and love and care about who will face judgment without hope. And God, that you would give us the courage to share hope with them. That you would just compel us to make that our life's work over and above everything else. That we would use whatever we have and and whatever we do to help people get to know you. God, use us as your kingdom people. As we wait, as we wait expectantly for your return. And Jesus, we want you to come quickly, but we also, we also say, just wait a little longer, God, because there's too many who don't know you who'll face judgment without you, and they're not ready yet, God. 
So while we want you to come, just, just not quite yet, God. And break us. Break us, God. For your kingdom cause. It's for your glory and your kingdom we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.